So, like I said, second last installment today, and I'll start off by saying um, we all like to follow. We all like to follow something, or we all like to follow someone, and I'll say that, um, but I'm quite useless when it comes to social media. In fact, if you see any posts on my Facebook page, it's usually my wife who has done them. Uh, she's just on, on the ball with those kinds of things. But occasionally I will, uh, you know, I'll be on one of the social media platforms and I'll see something that I, I like or something that I retweet or occasionally I will see someone uh, who has said something and I will follow them and I'll encourage others to follow them because they've said something or they're doing something that has captivated me, that has, that has really impacted my life in some way. And so the interesting thing about social media, social media has overtaken the world because it's discovered a secret about you and I. And that secret is that we like to follow. We like it when people follow us and we like to follow other people. We share their posts, we like them, we, we retweet whatever they're saying or doing. And so this whole concept of following it has become the norm of our 21st century context. I mean, you can be at the top of your game, you can be the CEO of a big company and you could be following someone. You can be a stay-at-home mom and you're following someone or a pastor or a student or whatever you're doing, we'd like to follow because social media has drastically shaped our culture. Like I said, you find someone that uh, has captured your imagination, you find someone that you like, you find someone that you would like to be like, and you follow them, or you find someone you agree with on important issues or share the common interests with. But sometimes I'm not always sure we understand what it truly means to follow someone. Because when you follow someone, it usually means that a whole bunch of other people who don't follow that person or that that position now won't follow you, now won't like you. You'll get the thumbs down emoticon or the sad face emoticon or the crying face or the angry face emoticon. In a sense, you will be associated with everything about that person or that movement that you have chosen to follow, even if you don't agree with everything that they say. And so the question is, are you prepared to carry your cross when people oppose you for who you follow. And I'm not just talking about social media now. In some cases, we won't. In some cases, the cost of rejection is just too much. Or the cost of all that attention is just too much, and so we don't. But in some cases, we will, because we value the person, or we value the principle, or we value the cause higher than our personal cost. And so before you simply follow someone, we need to understand what it actually means to follow that person, what it actually entails, what are the consequences of following that person. And the same is true of Christianity. If we are truly going to follow Jesus, it means we need to be convinced about certain things, certain things that will drastically, drastically impact our lives. And again, the question, question is, is it worth following Jesus? Is it worth carrying your cross for Jesus? And now before you all say yes, because we're in church, do we truly understand what it means to carry our cross for Him? What it entails, what the consequences, the repercussions of it are going to be. And so in our second last defining moment, I want us to truly, I want us to dig down and truly understand what it means to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Him. 
And I'm trusting that it's going to be a defining moment. A defining moment from this moment on that we would be so resolved to follow Jesus no matter what happens in life. So, you want to flip over your bulletins, you're going to see where we're going this morning. If we are truly going to follow Jesus, it means these three things according to this passage that we're going to have a look at. Firstly, it means confessing Jesus as Christ. Number two, understanding the cross of Christ. And then number three, carrying your cross for Christ. So here we go, point number one, following Jesus means confessing Jesus as Christ. Now, this is the big foundational aspect of Christianity. If you get this one wrong, or if you're not convinced about this one, you can't truly follow Jesus. We have to get who he is before we can truly follow him. So won't you read with me Luke chapter 9 from verse 18. Grab your Bibles in front of you in those chair pockets or somewhere along your row or click on it if you have a Bible app or you're welcome to follow on screen with us. But like I say, and I want to say every Sunday, I want you to see it for yourself in God's word. Don't take my word for it. Here we go. So the context is Jesus uh, is away from the crowds. He's busy praying. He just has his disciples hanging around. He finishes praying, and then he has this very, very important, and dare I say very challenging conversation with them. Verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And so at the start of this conversation, we get a big foundational question. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who, what are the crowds saying out there? Who do they think, what are they, who do they say that I, I am? And, and the disciples answer, well, there's a couple of options going around. Some big names have been thrown into the pot. Some are saying you, you're John the Baptist that has come back to, to life. Others are saying you're Elijah. Some say, you know, you're just one of the Old Testament prophets, one of the old prophets that, that has risen again. And so what is so significant about John the Baptist? This was the same answer that was given to Herod when he heard about Jesus. And he also asked the same question, well, who is this Jesus? And the answer given to him was, we think he's John the Baptist that has come back to life. That would have freaked Herod out. Because Herod had John the Baptist beheaded because John the Baptist rebuked him for marrying his brother's wife. He says, Herod, you can't marry your brother's wife. And so he was then promptly beheaded. So he's freaking out. If this is true, that this Jesus guy is actually John the Baptist, he's come back to haunt me. And then what's the deal with Elijah? The rumor was, also one of the other rumors, is Jesus was uh, Elijah. And And the interesting thing about Elijah is that you might remember he never tasted death. He was walking along one day with his protege, Elisha, you know, kind of having a little staff meeting, leadership meeting, and next minute, Elijah's taken up into heavens on chariots of fire. Not sure if that's where the song comes from, but amazing moment. And so the Jews, knowing their Old Testament scriptures, they were expecting his return because he never tasted death, because of prophecies like this. Have a look at this, Malachi 4, 5. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before 
the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before the Lord comes, I'm going to send Elijah back to you. And so we think, what's going on here? Well, Jesus provides the interpretation of that prophecy way back in Matthew eleven fourteen. He says, John the Baptist, the guy that was beheaded, John the Baptist is Elijah. In other words, he has, John the Baptist has come in the spirit and authority of Elijah. Now, if you're confused and thinking, whoa, this is very heady theological stuff, basically what's going on is if John the Baptist has been beheaded, Jesus tells us, well, the Bible tells us, and Jesus says that he came in the spirit and authority of Elijah, well, then Jesus can't be any one of those two. But they were instrumental in themselves of pointing forward to this Messiah, this Christ that was going to come. And so the general consensus of the day amongst the crowd was, Jesus, you're close. You're close to being the Messiah, but you're not quite there yet. And so, but you, 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 you're there with some, some, some pretty big names that have been dropped into the hat in terms of trying to describe who you are. John the Baptist, Elijah, this prophet, that prophet. But you're not quite the one that we were expecting. You're not quite the, the Messiah that we've been waiting for and praying for. You're close, but you're not quite there. Now, if we had hit pause there, and we jump now to the 21st century context, our context, what would the 21st century, how would they answer the question, well, who do people say I am? Who do, what do the people say today as to who Jesus is? Some might say, oh, Jesus Great historical figure. Just like Mahatma Gandhi, just like Mother Teresa, did amazing things. Really good guy. Great moral teacher. And we should, we should really listen to what he has said. He's a wonderful example for us today. But that whole you know, son of God thing, you know, dying, rising again, that was just his disciples. That was just their, their heartache, their way of trying to cope with what had happened to him. But we should all strive to, to live out the legacy of Jesus, you know, forgiveness, grace, all that kind of thing. And so the one consensus is that, no, he was just a man, just a great moral teacher, just a great historical figure like so many throughout history. Then, of course, there are the more hostile answers. We'll put a couple of these on screen for you to see. Jesse Ventura, former governor of Minnesota, he said this, Organized religion, including Christianity, is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. Talking about us. Agreeing with him is good old Larry Flint. If you don't know who Larry Flint is, it's a good thing. Uh, he started Playboy. He says this. There's nothing good I can say about it, religion or Christianity. He says people use it as a crutch. Obviously, he's going to say that because what did Jesus say about looking at a woman lustfully? You've got to pluck out your eyes. So he's obviously not going to go with Jesus. Then this one was very interesting. Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, who started one of the biggest news corporations in the world. Now you think, okay, Ted Turner, cool. Journalistic mind. He's going to gather a lot of information. He's going to interview a lot of people. He's going to come up with a very objective answer as to who Jesus is. Christianity is a religion for losers. Are you ready? Thanks, Ted. That's the best you can do? Sigmund Freud, Austrian neurologist in the late 1800s, described Christianity this way. He says, people of faith create a God. Right? So right off the bat, you have just made him up. 
People of faith create a God because they have strong wishes and hopes within them that act as a comfort against the harshness of life. He's basically just saying, you know what? You've just replaced your comfy blanket when you were a kid with this made-up image of God just to keep you, give you hope and comfort when times get tough. He goes on and says, the idea of God comes from the need for an idyllic father figure that eclipses either a non-existent or imperfect real father in the life of a religiously minded person. You had a bad experience with your earthly dad. So what, what people do is they, they just make up a perfect dad in their minds, call him God, again, just to, to comfort them. What about our postmodern culture that we're living in? And they all say, you know what, hey, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's wonderful. You want to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, that's wonderful. Just, just listen, just don't impose it on me. Because remember what the postmodern culture says is that there's no absolute truth. All truth is relative. So if you want to believe in Jesus as God, and I want to believe that Oprah is God, or you want Mahatma Gandhi is God, then that's fine. Just remember, at the end of the day, we just have to embrace each other's views. We just have to tolerate each other. Or they say, you know what, Jesus is just, let's just sum it up this way. Jesus is just one of many ways to God. One, in, one of many paths towards enlightenment. And so those are some of the answers to the question, who is Jesus? Who do people say that I am? But you can't truly follow Jesus with those answers. There's only one correct answer. Look at verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Notice it's singular. Not one of many Christs of God that we're waiting for. One of many ways to God. One of many paths. No, no, no. The Christ of God. Christ means the anointed one of God. In other words, you are the one that John the Baptist came preparing the way for. You are the one that Elijah pointed toward. You are the one that all those other prophets of old pointed and prophesied about. You have finally arrived. There's no need to keep looking. There's no more paths to prepare. The anointed one of God is here. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, sunrise, we have to ask ourselves a question too. Especially if you're here this morning and you're still, you're still figuring out this whole Christianity thing. You're, maybe you're not quite convinced. I'm so, so glad you're here. Because this is core foundational stuff. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just another prophet to you? Like there have been so many throughout history. Just another prophet still preparing the way for the true son of God still to come. Or is he just a moral teacher, a great historical figure? Or is he a fictitious figure that you grab hold of every now and again when you're going through a tough time and you hope in that moment that he's real? He's just one of many ways to God. Or, as Peter says, he is the anointed son of God. I know it's hot, but you guys, your answer to this is huge. Your answer to this is foundation. You get this one wrong, your whole, your whole spiritual foundation becomes very shaky and it will cave in. The craziest thing, the last couple of months, we have seen prominent pastors give up on their faith. Prominent worship leaders 
give up on their faith. Because I think it comes back to this. Who do you say Jesus is? Being convinced as to who he is. Confessing that Jesus is the one true son of God. That is on track. But the next thing we need to be convinced about, the next thing we need to understand is what Jesus came to do. Point number two. Following Jesus means understanding the cross of Christ. Look at Jesus' response to Peter. Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. In fact, in the original Greek, strictly charged was very strong language. It was almost like a threat. Jesus says, don't you dare. Don't you dare say that outside of this circle. Just keep it to yourselves for the time being. You think, well, why? Because the gospel is not quite finished yet. There's still many things Jesus needs to teach. There are still many things, uh, things Jesus needs to do before he gets arrested. And a statement like that could land him in a lot of hot water with the religious leaders before his designated time. He goes on, verse 22, saying, The Son of Man, future still, right? Not now. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be Raised. And so he says it in plain English or plain Aramaic back, back in those days that the culmination of his mission was to die on the cross and then rise again. But now for most Jews, including the disciples, including the ones who think you need to understand who he is and understand what he's about, what his mission is about, they had another picture, another understanding of what this Christ was supposed to come and do. Most of them Wanted another judges type character. You remember back in the uh, back in the Old Testament, the judges like Samson. They were they were waiting for another Samson. You know, a guy with bristling muscle, long flowing hair to just come and take out the Romans. Or they were waiting for another Gideon, another leader to come and raise up an army to take out the the oppressive Roman rule over the nation of Israel and and reestablish its independence, the independence of the nation, reestablish its borders, its ground. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, they still didn't get it. Have a look at this, Acts 1.6. So Jesus appears to them after his resurrection from the, de- from the grave. He says this, they ask him. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, wow, Jesus, that whole death thing that really got us down, but then you, you, you came back to life, amazing. Can we just put that aside? Can we just focus now, Jesus? Is this the time now that you're actually going to be our king? Is this the time now where you're going to establish the nation of Israel and reign and rule within Israel's borders? They just, they didn't get it. Jesus was about establishing a spiritual kingdom. Make no mistake, at At his return, when he finally returns at the end of the age, he will finally usher in his kingdom fully and it will have a physical presence to it in terms of the new heavens and the new earth. But before any of that can happen, Jesus has to suffer in order to ensure that that comes about. And so they weren't understanding what he was saying. Listen again to what he says. Look at the emphasis. Verse 22 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things. Another translation says it is necessary. It's necessary that he be rejected and suffer and ultimately die. And so those words must and necessary tell us that something quite deliberate was going on here. 
It wasn't just because Jesus really got under the skin of the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests. I mean, he did that, and eventually they, like, you know, they just couldn't take it anymore, so they had him killed. But what this tells us is that there's, some, there's a bigger reason why that had to happen. There's something bigger going on here that the disciples need to understand, that you and I need to understand why he had to suffer on the cross and die. And the crazy thing is, that reason is littered throughout the Old Testament scriptures, which is what they would have had, but they just never saw it. I mean, have a look at this, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, speaking about this Messiah who was to come. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, you can't get much more of a clearer prophecy than that of what this Christ was to come and do. But notice why. Why was he pierced? Why was he crushed? Why was he chastised? The answer is there in the text. They should have seen it. For our transgressions, in other words, for our disobedience to God, for our iniquities, in other words, for our sins. He says, because we had turned away from our chief shepherd, we turned, we rejected God, and we decided to follow other things, other people, other ways, the things of this world, other pleasures, other idols. And so to have him killed, was this the chief priest's plan? No, they, they were just simply the means that brought about the cross. We see that this was the ultimate plan of God. Look at verse 4 again. It says, he was smitten by God. Verse 6 says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The very God we rejected and the very God that we sinned against is the God who poured out his wrathful justice on his son instead of us. And so that speaks of a very, very holy God who doesn't just simply overlook our sin, who doesn't just simply overlook our rejection of him, but in his mercy and grace, he pours out his wrathful justice on Jesus, not on us. And so what does this prophecy say is the result of, this, of the cross or this chastisement? Look at verse five again, it says, the chastisement or the cross that brought about, that brought us peace. Peace between us and God. Forgiveness between us and God. More than that, adoption as sons and daughters into God's kingdom. So yes, Jesus came to usher in God's kingdom, but we can't just simply assume that we're automatically a part of it. We need to see, we need to understand firstly that as mankind, we're cut off from God, that we're separated from His kingdom because of our sinful condition. You might have heard me say it before, that fancy theologians call this the doctrine of total depravity, meaning that we're not as evil as we can be in terms of our actions, but the totality of our beings have been infected and affected by sin. Our minds, our hearts, our souls, our bodies and this sinful condition is unacceptable before a very holy God. But instead of us receiving the repercussions of that condition, 
God makes a merciful plan through the cross, through Jesus, what he did on the cross for us so that we might be reunited and a part of his kingdom. The reason why the cross is such a stumbling block to the Jews way back in the first century and to so many people throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, is because there's this this arrogance in man that says, I don't need to be saved. I don't need to be saved from anything. I'm I'm not a sinner. I I don't need my sins to be paid for. If we're truly going to follow Jesus as the Christ, that means understanding and believing that as the Christ, like he says, he had to suffer and die and rise again for our sins because we are sinners before a holy God. Now, if you are down with this point, if you're, like, you're sitting and you go, I know that, Jason, I believe that, I grab hold of that with all of my life, that Jesus paid for my sins. If that's you, wonderful. And in this oppressive heat, you can just breathe a sigh of relief and go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that I am part of your kingdom. Thank you that I am a son or daughter of yours because of what you did, Jesus. But if you're sitting here and you're going, mm, not too sure about that, do me one favor. Don't compare yourself with the people around you. You will always find someone that you're better than. And then you'll come to the conclusion, you see, I am a good person. I'm not a sinner. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. What you need to do is compare yourself before a very, very holy God and see how you measure up. And then realize that he has made a way for you to be made right with him, to be made good with him because of Jesus, because Jesus had to suffer and die in your place. So if we're truly gonna follow Jesus, we must confess, A, he is the Christ. Secondly, understand the cross. And then if we embrace those two points by faith, it will result in a defining moment in your life. It will dramatically impact your life, which is what the last point is all about. Have a look at this. If you're truly going to follow Jesus, it means carrying your cross for Christ. Jesus goes on, verse 23, and he he says this. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And again, the cross we carry here is, is not the cross of wrath, right? That Jesus took care of that in point number two. The cross we carry is a cross of self-denial. Denying means, means denying what culture deems as a successful person, as a person who's got it all together. In fact, no matter what culture you come from, and the cool thing about Sunrise is that there's so many different cultures represented here. But I'm saying one of the common things of all cultures is that they're going to say the opposite of Jesus here. Most of our cultures will say, you know what, no, you need to exalt yourself. You need to become all that you want to be in this world so that everyone eventually looks at you and go, wow, you made it, you did it, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to idolize you. Jesus says we're to deny ourselves. The way we do that, he says, is by taking up your cross daily, every day. 
One of my favorite preachers, John Piper, he explains it this way. Have a look at this. He says, Christ died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. He died so that we could be glorified, but not to keep us from being crucified. For the Christian, the cross of Christ is not merely a past place of substitution, it is also a present place of daily execution. Every day we wake up and kill the sin in us. Or Romans 6, 6 says it this way, our old self, that old self that liked to reject Jesus and follow other things, false gods, lusts, desires, the ways of this world, your own ways. He says, that old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin, to following sin. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Every day we wake up and we reckon ourselves dead to sin and we declare we're very much alive to you, Lord. We're gonna follow you today. And the only way you can do that is because of point two because he died on the cross for you. Never let the cross lose its crucifying power in you. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean? What does it look like to carry your cross for Jesus every day? Let's try to get as clear and as as specific as possible. So we're gonna ask three concluding questions that Jesus will answer in the rest of his conversation with his disciples. So the first question goes like this. Whose sake are you living for? If you had to complete the statement or the question, I'm living for, what's the first thing that comes to mind? My wife, my husband, my kids, my salary, my job, the weekends. What is that? Jesus says this, verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, it's interesting. There are three, just on the side here, there are three different words for life in the original Greek. There's the word bios, which means physical life, zoe, which means eternal life, and then psyche, I think that's how they said it in the original Greek, which in our Western culture, we've adopted as psychology, the life of the mind, but it's more than that. It refers to your inner being, your true identity, your identity. And so he's saying here, if you follow something else in this world, you will lose your identity. Or you will get a false identity. But if you follow me, you will get a true identity. And that affects the rest of your life, your other life, your physical life, your eternal life. If you live for his sake, you might lose your life. Literally, you might lose your bios life. You might, be, uh, you might be persecuted to death as you go off to some communist country and you preach the gospel there. Or most likely you'll be ostracized, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be slammed as a closed-minded, arrogant Christian. But however, you may lose your life for Jesus, you will definitely save it because you will gain eternal life. So to live for any other sake results in eternal loss. So the point here is check your conviction. Your conviction. Who are you living for? Because again, this speaks of lordship. Your children or your work can't be lord of your life. They will give you a form of identity, but it won't last. It can't last. 
Question number two, have you crucified the world to yourself? Jesus goes on, he says, verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What if you gain everything in this world, everything that it has to offer? And let's be honest, it has a lot to offer. This island, this little island has a lot to offer. It can offer you money, fame, fortune, power, status. And so if you gain everything that this world has to offer and you become successful in the world's eyes, you follow the world, you follow the ways of this world, the things of this world, they become your desire, they become your focus, they become your identity. And, you'll, and to be honest, you most likely get a lot of those things. You'll get the fame, you'll get the status. But what if you achieve all those things? And then at the end of the age when Jesus returns, and this world, this temporary world with its temporary ways, its temporary things is done away with and we lose our souls. Now listen, this is very harsh from Jesus. I'm thinking, wow, Jesus, what happened to the meek and mild loving Jesus? I mean, this, is, this goes against my personality, this type of direct speech. I mean, I'm, sometimes I'm so subtle, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. And so Jesus, he's just like throwing it out there. He's calling a spade a shovel. And I'm thinking, why, Jesus? Why are you being so harsh? Why are you being so direct? Because I hope you can see, it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal separation from God. He's not beating around the bush. Last question. Are you ashamed or are you a faithful follower? It says verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me, in other words, point number one, that I'm the Christ, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, my ways, my values, my principles, what I did on the cross, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The point is, sunrise, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. So between now and then, unless we go be with him before then, what are we going to be doing? The opposite of being ashamed, in my opinion, is being a person of conviction. To be a person of conviction means to be a faithful follower of Jesus because you're so convinced about who he is and what he accomplished on the cross for you. This has glorious repercussions to it. A faithful follower not just for your sake, but a faithful follower for the sake of your spouse. Husbands, you're a follower of Jesus. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Deny yourself so that your wife might experience the love of Jesus through you. Wives, loving and respecting, dare I say it, submitting to your husbands, encouraging them to lead the home with the love and grace of Jesus. Faithfully following Jesus for the sake of your girlfriend or your boyfriend, for the purity of your relationship. Singles, faithfully following Jesus with all patience, trusting in him, trusting that he is leading you, trusting in his timing, being unmoved for Jesus, being unmoved in the ways and things of Jesus. 
that are contrary to this world. Faithfully following Jesus for the sake of your children. Moms and dads, what do you want your children to say about you one day? I thought about this one. And I thought, I want Paige and Emma to say that mom and I, me, dad, didn't live for them. Mom and dad didn't live for them. They lived for the sake of following Jesus. They demonstrated, they showed us what it means to carry your cross every day for Jesus. It's difficult, but it's the most loving thing that you can do to show your children what it means to live for the savior of their souls and the creator of the universe. Faithfully following Jesus in your workplace. I'm almost done. Answer this question. Why do you work where you work? Or why do you do what you do? Because I'm good at what I do? It's a great answer. Because I enjoy what I do? Brilliant answer. Because it puts food on the table? Great answer. But those can't be our ultimate answers. To faithfully follow Jesus in the workplace means to show that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what your work offers, better than the fame, better than the fortune, better than the status, better than the positions. It shows Jesus is better than those things. You know what it ultimately shows? It shows Jesus, it shows hope. As you faithfully follow Jesus in your workplace, it shows, it demonstrates hope and everyone is attracted to hope because everyone needs to hope in something at some point in their lives and they will see it in and through you. So let me finish off by saying this. Let's carry our crosses for the sake of Jesus because the eternal ramifications of that far outweigh the temporary pleasures of this world. Our defining truth for this morning can be summed up like this. Faithfully following Jesus will cost you the world, but following the world will cost you Jesus. But I'm convinced that if we truly know who he is, and we truly understand what he did on the cross for us, we will do whatever it takes to follow him for his glory and for our ultimate good, joy, and peace, not only in this world, but in the one to come. Amen. Won't you pray with me? We'll sing one last song. Heavenly Father, I ask by the presence of the Holy Spirit here that you would all strengthen our hearts, strengthen our conviction. Those of us who are your children here this morning, who are regenerated and born again by you, Holy Spirit, that right now in this moment, you would strengthen our convictions to know who you are, Jesus, to understand completely what you did on the cross for us so that we might carry our crosses for you every single day. No matter how challenging it is out there, all the temptations that are out there to follow other things, would you keep us grounded? Would you keep us rooted in you, Jesus? 
because you're better. You're better. You're better than anything this world has to offer. Open eyes, please, here this morning to see that. If there are eyes blinded to who you are, Jesus, to what you did, Jesus, open those eyes right now that they might see, that they might truly see, glorify you, believe in you, live for you. For your glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you mind standing one last time?
That's our heart's cry. It's our heart's declaration. Jesus, only Jesus. But it's also our prayer. Jesus, just be the only one in our lives that we follow. Because Jesus, you know the temptations out there. You know all the attractions out there. But Jesus, be the one. Be the one that we follow. The one that we hold on to. In your mighty, gracious name. Amen.